Welcome to On The Continent, your one-stop shop for all things European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm David Cartledge. And on today's edition, one step forward on the field, two step backwards off it for Barca. But Sunday is D-Day and the future of Messi, Griezmann, Cuccino et al. will be put to the vote. We'll run through the runners and riders in the club's presidential election. Also, meet the new Marseille, although it's the same old, same old. And is there life after Gross for Schalke? Or will this weekend bring a new death to die for? David, it's a long-running saga of how Barcelona went from being one of the world's, if not the world's, greatest football club to where they are now with the police um, storming their building, if you like, and arresting the president. What has gone wrong? (laughs) Well, um, I think you have to go back to early 2020, really, when when things started to really um, unravel at Barcelona and on various levels. Um, It was revealed then that Barca had paid a company... um, to, to smear current uh, and former players, um, including Gerard Pique, Lionel Messi, as well as um, club presidential candidates, which, which we'll get on to um, in, in a minute, um, such as uh, Joan Laporta and Victor Font, um, two of the people currently in the running for the, for the top job. Um, and that, that's bad enough. Um, but the reason the police have uh, made these arrests and investigated this week, um, acted, is because of the financial details, um, which are completely unclear at the moment, apart from the fact that it, it, it appears that, that basically Bartomeu, the former president, has, has been paying this company um, more money than he should have um, for, for their services. And it is indeed a very, very murky situation that's been uncovered there at Barcelona. And how has this affected the football, Andy? Um well, the, the football has been a sort of blessed release from this in, in, in 2021. On the pitch, it's been surprisingly good of late. Um, whether that is um, too late to really get something out of the season, it, I don't know. It's definitely too late to get something out of the Champions League. I mean, what I find remarkable is uh, after, as we speak, and we'll come back to the presidential candidates in a minute because that's the most important result of the week, I think. After um, the, the the second leg of the Copa del Rey semi-final against Sevilla, Barcelona, to, to remind everyone, were 2-0 down from the first leg. They came back, having beaten Sevilla in La Liga at the weekend, uh, the Sanchez-Pijuan, which was notable because, well, let's be honest, Barcelona don't beat anyone decent this season. And um, they performed well um, at Nodebillon and, and, and got a deserved win. Um, Gerard Piquet had said after that, and he's always got the right words. Um, he said after that, well, you know, if it could change our season, if we can turn it around in the, in, in the Copa del Rey. And after that victory with Piquet himself scoring the goal that took it into extra time before they went in on and won it there. Um, that there was, I think a, a sort of outpouring of Barcelona fans um, and, and Catalan media and on social media saying, oh, well, you know, th- this this is it. Here we go. And you just think, 
you know, I, I feel like sort of Scroogeish taking away from this moment, which was a really great moment. But for me, the performance, whilst very, very good in the second leg of the Copa semi-final against Sevilla, um, had more than a hint of the comeback against Paris Saint-Germain, the Champions League to it for, for me. And I'm interested to hear what you think about this, David, because if you look back at the remontada yeah. three years ago against PSG, yes, Barcelona played very well on the night, but it was also accompanied by a little bit of refereeing help, a little bit of the other team totally playing the occasion rather than the game. And we got a lot of that from mm-hmm. Sevilla because before we get to the point where PK scores the equaliser in, in stoppage time to take it into extra time, which does feel like a wonderful moment and should be enjoyed for what it is. Yeah. Sevilla had their chances despite being in their shell for a lot of the night. They had uh, a penalty, which they missed. They had so many chances to get the ball away before PK scored the equaliser. And there's this extraordinary moment where the ball comes to the back post. Diego Carlos just needs to head it out for a quarter and he heads it back into play. And then Alba tees it up for PK yeah. to score. Um, what, what do you what do you think with the with the Remontada comparison? Yeah, absolutely. I completely understand that. And I think these results are almost dangerous in a way because they give you false hope potentially of a of a changing of the tide. Oh, we've been going through a bad moment, but we can still produce these these epic moments. Mm. And you potentially live off them and think that things are on the right track. Things are going the right way. Um, again, great moment, and I found it quite apt in a week of you know a lot of presidential elections talk that you know the people's president Gerard Piquet would would score the goal. Um, you know he's he's inevitably <laughs> going <laughs> to take that role up one day, whenever that may be. Um, yeah. So that was that was it was it was a nice moment in that sense. But yes, I definitely err on the side of caution in terms of thinking that the the worst is over on a, on a plain sense. There's still a lot of restructuring to do at Barcelona. Um, but the signs have been encouraging. I think the past two games that against Sevilla have probably been their best moments of the season so far. They've given the strongest indication yet that there is some potential there. Uh, a lot of the younger players um, shining. Um, and I'd also say about the victory last night, Messi wasn't even in the five best players on Barcelona's team. He was playing, but he wasn't even one of the best players. So that was encouraging as well, that other players could step up. I thought Dembele played really, really well. Pedri, again, as usual. Uh, Young Mingueza came in and, and did very well too. So that those are encouraging signs. Those yeah. are things that you'd look at and say, okay, we can build with this car. But it is all about the presidential election at the, the, the weekend. And... Um, <laughs> Of course, you've got the three candidates. You've got uh, Victor Font, you've got uh, Tony Frescher, and uh, you've got uh, Joanne Laporta, who's, who's, who's been there before. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only person, David, who uh, noticed um, Laporta. I'm not saying he's a, a, a man full of himself or a, a man who's putting the cart before the horse or anything like that, but sitting in the presidential box for this return leg against Sevilla. I mean, that's a power move, right? That's 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 what is known in the business as big dick energy, and that's, that he, that's, that's exactly what he was putting across. 
I didn't realise that there was an actual term for that in the business, <laughs> but thank you. In, indeed, there is. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, that 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 was a that that was a power move. That what that, that really was. You know, the, the fact that he was up there and then he was commenting after the game, saying, "Oh, Barca fans, they deserve more nights like this." Under me, you'll get those nights. So it was a, it was a very very tactful uh, way of of how he did things, and 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 yeah, and he is the favourite. Um, he's. He's got in, in what he did in the past the Barcelona, of course, in his first spell, um, still sits very, very well. He was there from 2003 to 2010, oversaw a very successful period under Frank Rijkaard, and then he moved on to Pep Guardiola as well, an untested, unknown almost Pep Guardiola. Um, and this came off the back of Real Madrid's success early 2000s. Um, Barcelona hadn't won any trophies since 1999, and Laporta will always be the man. He can always put that top of his list of his mandate. I turned things around at Barcelona last time. They were, you know, they they were in a mess. I can do it again. With that big dick energy in mind, do you mind explaining what how important these elections are, and also what the role of a president is? Is that the equivalent of what would be in the Premier League a chairman? And how can the president claim so much of? A team success in that way, and do the do the fans buy that? Do they buy it? Do they turn around and say, "Yeah, it was down to you that we are or were the best team ever"? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's such an important thing for Spanish clubs to have these presidents as they do because of the the mandate that they put across, the structure that they put across. So not only did they come in as a president, they come in with uh, their presentations of who they want in. Um, in certain positions, I think the role of a sporting director is going to be very, very important for Barcelona going forward because they have lacked an identity and they need a restructuring. So it will be the first thing a new president puts in place. Um, in in this instance, I know Joan Laporta, he really likes the idea of uh, bringing Jordi Cruyff in. Um, he wants to bring in Matteo uh, Almany as well, who was at Valencia. Fantastic success there um, alongside Marcelino. Um, so little things like that. Um, uh, 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 going to be very like what he puts out now are very very important in terms of the next five ten years of Barcelona. What happens now with these presidential elections? It's a it, they've got two paths. This they can either put in a, a successful institution and what they want to propose, or they put in one that potentially has big holes in it that makes them fall potentially further behind. I mean, what really works for Laporta is the fact that he inherited a, a pretty shambolically run club when he took over the, the the club the first time. So I think not just the success speaks for him, um, but the fact that he, even if you're not a fan, managed fairly successfully to paper over the cracks, at, at least for a, for a time, yeah. and uh, managed to uh, refinance a, a lot of the debt that they had at the time, which I think is, is really important. Because one of the, and it's been quite a, a combative sort of public battle between these three candidates so far in that they've got very different ideas of how they want to take Barcelona forward. And Fresher has even suggested, well, we're Barcelona, you know, we can be out there signing big players. Whereas no one who's been paying attention really thinks that. I mean, that's crazy. The last thing they need is to go out and saddle more debt on a on, on a club that, that, that can't handle it, even if it were possible. Because remember, this was a club... We couldn't scrape together the money to buy Memphis Depay or to release Eric Garcia from the last six months of his Manchester City contract um, last last winter. So I think that realistic approach is something that's different because normally, Dotton, 
if you're going for the presidency of a large club in in, in Spain, you'll go right. I'm gonna I, I'm I'm gonna bring you Mbappe. If you vote me in, I'm gonna bring you Erling Haaland. You know that's your line. Whereas in this sense, in this context, and not just the context of the world, but the context of Barcelona, it's just not realistic. And you would think even the most optimistic of fans would see that. I would have thought that with Barcelona, the context has been so far has been, although this year clearly will be different, but the context has been, I'm going to be the president that keeps Lionel Messi at this club. I'm going to be the president that ensures that Antoine Griezmann uh, lives up to his name and stays at this club. And I'm going to be the president, dare I say it, who finds a buyer for Philippe Cucina, something of a mistake by the previous president. I mean, that is the context as I can see it. It's about the players that you are either going to keep or dispose of. That's going to be crucial to the presidential election, I would have thought, Andy. Yeah, you went a bit proclaimers there in uh, putting out your election promises, which uh, I particularly enjoyed. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who holds on to, to Leo Messi. But but th- you're 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 right. That um, is the that that is the that is the 500 million euro question. There's no doubt about it because um, I think when we're talking about Barcelona fans taking hope from moments like winning this game against Sevilla. It's not just that it harks back to the old days. And I, th- I think David's right about the, 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 the possible trap of false hope. But if you're a realistic Barcelona fan, and I know I keep talking about realistic Barcelona fans as if they exist. I'm sure there are some that exist. But it's, it's, it's about thinking, is there a way for us to hold on to Messi? Now, personally... I think there is a way for them to hold on to Messi. And at least part of that is the fact that in the last week and a half, we've had Leonardo talking in the French media about, we already know they're close to re-signing Neymar at Paris Saint-Germain. And he believes they're close to re-signing Mbappe as well. That closes the Messi door there. There's no doubt about that. They can't sign those two again with 70 million odd of annual salary between them and th- then pick up the bill for for, for Messi. So th- it's starting to close a few doors for him. I-, I just wonder, David, if the situation that we have with some big clubs rebuilding themselves, with um, the pandemic, I just wonder if Messi almost ends up staying at Barcelona by default and maybe if he can be sold a reason to to stay on and not uproot his family and all of that sort of good stuff, then then all the better. Yeah, I mean, I've always been convinced that he would, by hook or by crook, end up staying purely because of that reason what you've just ended on there about uprooting his family. I think he's just, he's, he's settled in Barcelona and his family are, um, he's idolised there. He's got a lovely life there. Um why at this stage of your career would you need to unsettle that, uproot that and and change things and, and, and face potential problems and troubles? Um, I don't think there's any need for him to do that. Um, it's funny. I, I noticed Tony Frecha, one of the candidates, he said that, you know, Messi can't continue Barcelona unless he restructures his deal. And he's probably been the only one who's the most explicit about that. And that is going to be 
one of the main issues that they are tasked tasked with. Because I think in the end he does stay, but he's going to have to stay by changing this deal. Um, I think you know, I, I think like you said, the doors are closing. I think Manchester City clearly want an Aguero replacement, and that means a centre forward, Erling Haaland potentially. Um, so that doesn't leave Messi many avenues to go into. Um, and I think staying at Barcelona is ultimately what he will do, and it could end up in being a, a restructuring of that contact uh, contract. Sorry, so the team can be rebuilt around him, I think, and be successful for the next maybe two, three years. Well, it would have been ideal if this Sunday was the 15th of March, then I could have thrown in a, a Shakespearean quote about beware the Ides of March. But it is Sunday. All eyes will be focused on this presidential election on Sunday, Andy. Uh, when, when will we get a result? Would it be um, almost well, immediate? Well, well it's, it's, it's all about the exit polls um, straight <laughs> afterwards, um, obviously. It would be very much like Blackadder the Third, I imagine. But <laughs> we, we are expecting something pretty quickly, I would think, because uh, Barcelona know how much not just their fans, but the whole football world is hanging on this. But there's a, there's a lot to pull together because um, there are more than 87,000 members who have been given the option of voting in person. And that's not just at a Camp Nou, but um, also there's a there's a polling station in, in, in Girona and uh, some, somewhere else. So there's a few bits to pull together. So I, I wouldn't imagine there'll be anything official until the start of next week but um yeah look everyone's absolutely hanging on this i personally i'll be quite surprised if it if it isn't laporta but let's see On this week's On the Continent, it's a tale of two presidents, isn't it? Um, on the one hand, we'll see what happens in Barcelona. But on the other hand, Marseille, Olympic Marseille, although not quite Barcelona, nevertheless, uh, a giant once upon a time of European football. They've got a new president and they're drawing a line. Are they under the Andres Villas Boas era? Or are they not, Andy? Yeah, well, not not just the uh, Andre Vichbois era, but um, the Jacques Henri Ero era as well. Who um, was the president who had upset quite a lot of people in Marseille, which is not an especially wise thing to do in a city that um, absolutely adores its its, its football team. When there are a number of things, but just before Christmas, the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of uh, Marseille fans was um, Ero sharing in a interview that he he said ninety five percent of the people who who work for this club are, are Marseille fans from Marseille, and for me that's a huge problem. That's one thing to think. That's another thing to say out loud to um, say that their passion is is a problem because their passion is is what keeps the club alive, is what keeps the club relevant. And um, so once Errol went, um, and, and that was really after everything that went down at the, the, the training ground, La Commanderie, um, a, a month or so ago, um, 
the, the new pick for president is an interesting one. It's Pablo Longoria, who's uh, been a recruiter for a number of clubs, including uh, Newcastle United in, in, in the past. Um, he's been sporting director at Marseille since just the start of this season. He's 34 years old and quite a young looking 34 as well. That's meant as a compliment, Pablo, before you say anything. And um, he is seen as a safe pair of hands to take them forward. Now, this is a really interesting move, I think. Giving ownership um, of of the club's day-to-day to someone who's never been a president before, to someone who's only been a sporting director for six months, but has convinced them so much with his discourse. And he's an incredibly confident public speaker, not not in an arrogant way, but I think in a very poised way. He's, he's impressive, definitely. And what worked really well for him as well is the fact that he's had a really good transfer window. He's managed to dump some big contracts. You were talking about, um, David, about the restructuring of Messi's contract. The first thing I thought of there was Dimitri Payet which is something they've they've managed to do quite well. Um, they've managed to dump Kevin Strokeman's undumpable contract off the wage bill, which is very impressive. They managed to get Eric Milliken um, from Marseille in um, from Marseille from to Marseille from uh, Napoli in in January, which is the Le Grand Attaquant that they've been talking about forever, the big centre forward that they've been talking about forever. Um, so even if things are still going quite badly on the pitch. To do that and to help recruit Jorge Sampaoli, who is combustible, and I know what you're thinking, combustible coach plus combustible club, what could possibly go wrong? Who cares? It's going to be fun. Um, I think the the work that Longoria has done so far is is impressive. But now the question is Sampaoli, because he's got this really weird bit of time to bat out before the end of the season. I mean, they lost 2-0 at, at Lille, who was still top of the table, um, despite it being 0-0 going into the 90th minute on Wednesday night. And afterwards, Stev Mandanda, the captain and goalkeeper, most experienced player, talked about, well, we've got to do our best for the rest of the season, but but then we've got to look forward to next season. So already, a season that they started as the second best team in France, um, the, the team that started in the Champions League, um, and we all know what a mess that was, have now basically written off the rest of this campaign. I mean, Sampaoli is a kind of all or nothing guy. How do you think he's going to receive that from Mandanda, David? I think he's the sort. I think he's the sort of guy who will just instill an energy immediately. He's, you know, you look at Sampaoli. I always think he's got a crazed look in his eye. Um, you know, you don't know whether he's going to hug you or clip you around the back of the ear he's got that sort of look about him <laughs> and, I, I, and, and I was going to bring up exactly what you just have he's just it could pretend it, it means chaos it, it, that, and that's what I love about it I think the, the fact that you know I think a common presence in Marseille just wouldn't sit well I think you need somebody with a bit of personality a bit of energy about him I think he will do that I think Mandanda will you know I think he can potentially look at back at those comments and think, oh, maybe I was wrong because I think Sam Pauli's input can be that, you know, enormous immediately. He, he's that sort of guy. Um, and I, I think we touched on this when I was on the show last time. I think it was, um, when we were talking about Marseille, I think it was after AVB had gone. Um, and I think I said, um, I think there's quite a nice team there. There's quite a nice structure there. They've got, I think, the defense, I think the back line 
is, is decent as well. They've got some decent players in midfield as well. I think there's a nice structure there, basically. Um, it just needs a few tweaks. I don't think there's a complete overhaul needed. Longoria, I think that that's, I think, you know, infusing for him something to work with. The, the fact that he doesn't have to rip it all up or a complete overhaul. I think there's a nice, you know, um, team there already. And from now until the end of the season, I think San Paoli, Longoria, they can, they can work. I think the big goal would be to just assess the squad and see how it is moving forward to next season. And then they can truly plan and, and make an assault on that top three, top four and get involved in that exciting title race in France right now. Yeah, they're going to have to be careful money-wise. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But going back to Sam Pauli and what he means, David, and um, of course, he might be relatively restricted by what you can do in the, the transfer market and we'll see what sort of squad they have next season. But but there is just this sense, isn't there, of him and Marseille being sort of kindred spirits that have been drawn to each other. I mean, he, he talked about it when he said... Um, you know there are there are two types of places in football. There are um, uh, places where everything's lived with a mania, um, uh, where, where everything's really tense and on edge. And there are other places that are more calm. I'm drawn to the tense places, and I, I think they're drawn to him yeah, as well. He's, he's been severe and now Marseille. <laughs> well, well, exactly. And I, I don't know. You, you know, we've talked before about how. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain have always been looking perhaps into Ancelotti for for this coach who is is going to click with them uh, this, this 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 big coach that that fits the club i kind of think that since bielsa marseille have been missing something the supporters have been missing something someone who lives it with as much like manic spirit as they do really there is something to be said for the chaos theory, David. There is something to be said for that. It is a legitimate scientific method, as, <laughs> as we know. But ultimately, that it might, in a way, be the, um, the important uh, factor that brings the club back. But does it necessarily translate into results on the pitch? Um. I think you know you look at Sam Pauli and what he's been about. His his results can go either way. Like Andy said, he's a very all or nothing guy. I remember when he was at Sevilla, he he had I think it was fifty three games there. His team scored ninety seven goals and conceded seventy one. I think that, <laughs> in a nutshell, kind of sums <laughs> up what you're going to get with Sam Pauli. I think there is. I think there's going to be times when the results aren't there, but. It is just going to be entertaining and chaos. And sometimes I think Marseille, again, a very, very special breed of fan, kind of like Sevilla's as well. They just want to be entertained. They just want to be, they just want to see a brand of football that they can get behind and it makes, you know, when they do eventually go back to the stadium, an enjoyable experience. And I think that's going to be key. He had a 50% win uh, rate at Sevilla. And, and again, that sums him up so, so well. And it wouldn't surprise me if he's at Marseille for a year or two, he has a similar sort of thing. And that's that's just the way it is. You bring in Sam Pauli, you have to, you know, you have to expect to get on the roller coaster and stay on. You're not getting off. And I think he needs this as as well, really, um, because Atletico Mineiro didn't finish in the most glorious way. Uh, Sevilla didn't finish brilliantly after the, the great start. Argentina... Uh, the 2018 World Cup was a total mess. And our pal Tim Vickery, Dotton, tells this brilliant story about when they're 
getting hammered by Croatia in the World Cup. There's the camera following Sampaoli down the touchline. In the last 10 minutes, he's, he's just swearing and insulting every Croatian player who gets the ball. He's just like just become this, this cranky old man. And that kind of unreasonableness is something to work with, I think, because they have got a way to go. I mean, they're 20 points behind Leon at the moment in third place. That's just unacceptable for them. And what David touched on about not just the results, but the excitement, I think that's something that's really important. You know, those fans who are so into their club, they've been away from the velodrome for a year. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I've thought about the return of all fans to football quite a lot. And when you think about that, you think, what is that first game back going to be like? And if I think what the velodrome's going to be like, I mean, it's going to be hairs on the back of the neck kind of business because it's like that anyway. But then you add absence making the heart grow fonder, a new coach who's ready to communicate with those fans in their own language, that language of passion, that language of excitement. I mean, it sets it up beautifully, whether whether it works results rise or not. I've always known that you had a particular uh, soft spot in your heart for a, a Olympic Marseille and the Velodrome ever since I saw your documentary, to be honest. Uh, you, you should really declare an interest because uh, <laughs> the chaos theory... Well, the chaos theory won you lot an FA Cup, didn't it? <laughs> no, that was that was cold towels at half time. <laughs> well, well, combustible team, uh, combustible players, the crazy gang is what I'll say to that. On our continuing journey of looking at clubs that are falling apart <laughs> this week's OTC, <laughs> honestly, we didn't plan it like this, but we've got to talk about Schalke. Dear, oh dear, oh dear. Things get from bad to worse, it seems. So they've sacked the coach, Christian Gross, and anybody, it seems, connected uh, with Christian Gross at the club. And they're they're in free fall. They, they I mean, on the pitch, it's a it's a five aside game for a lot of uh, the opposing teams. It seems like they're banging in goals left, right, and centre. They do look a mess in defence. They don't seem to have an answer up front. And where is their midfield? Uh, do you want to take this first, David? I think if you look at where they were, where they were a few years ago, um, Champions League last sixteen tie against Manchester City again. It was a, a Schalke side then that was a, a weird crop of players. Again, there didn't seem to be any theme running through it. It just seemed to be lots of different parts from, from different places. But they still managed to achieve that um, by hook or by crook. They, they managed to get there. Um, and then if you look at the fallout from then on, it's a case of, you know, the, the coaches that they have gone to gone through will obviously get um, all the attention. Um, you know, they're on their fifth coach this season. I realise it's a it's a Bundesliga record as well uh, for the first time in history. Nobody has gone through that many coaches. Um, 
I think the decisions behind the scenes in terms of player recruitment um, have have clearly, you know, come to the fore here for me. If you look at the players that they've let go and brought in the replacements, um, you, you know, you look at somebody like Weston McKenney who's gone this week and completed his move to Juve um, for for peanuts, basically. Um, it, you know, that's that kind of sums up the sort of deals that they have been doing. But I think the the McKenney thing is quite interesting, David, because I mean. He was one of Schalke's better players in the back end of last season. It was really disastrous under David Wagner. But on the other hand, um, I think it's just really quite a testament to the toxic atmosphere there that a player who you think, "Eh, yeah, he's all right, but why are Juventus signing him? Ends up in a more functional environment uh, for for want of a better phrase, because Juventus are, are transitional in their, their their own way, and all of a sudden McKenny looks fantastic. I, I mean, I know players, good players look better with good players around them, but still, I, I don't think anyone who watched Schalke on a regular basis last season would have seen McKenny as someone who could have succeeded at Juventus. And I think it's really a good mark of how underachieving those players are. I mean, again, you spoke about the. Um, the, the the team that was in the Champions League two years ago. I mean, two years ago they were halfway through that Champions League side against Manchester uh, against Manchester City, which is extraordinary. And the team's not really that different. I think that's the remarkable thing there. So these players, it's almost as if they've kind of given up, really. Um, I, I mean, it was it was bad at the start of the season. A because we got absolutely hammered by Bayern in the first game. Um, B, because there were players in that team, as we've mentioned on here before, who uh, had been loaned out that they didn't really want, but they couldn't find any takers for, um, like Mark Oots, like Nabil Bentaleb, like Ralph Fairman, who, until he was injured recently, in has been one of their better players in, in recent weeks. Um, but I just think th- th- there can be really no pinning it on Christian Gross uh, because the team, whilst not being anywhere near great, have played their best stuff this season with him in charge. But then you have, um, as reported in the German media last week, um, Mustafi, Kolasinac, uh, Klaasian Huntelaar, uh, going to sporting director Jochen Schneider and um, uh, general manager Sasha Rieter and going, look, you've got to get rid of him. Um he uh, calls us the wrong names. He talks to us in the wrong language. Sometimes he forgets where he is. And, um, uh, you know, in retrospect, A, that, that tells you two things. A, that the players were, were, were basically chucking it in. And B, that Schneider and Rita, who were both fired as well <laughs> on the Sunday, had absolutely no influence to do anything about it. So um, look, look, these players have got to look at themselves. I mean, with those three that I mentioned, none of them are going to be at the club next season. Two loanies and one on a short-term deal. Class Jan Huntelaar arrived with um, a, a calf injury and has played 10 minutes of Bundesliga football so far. So it's not so much... Um, getting the band back together as, as, as it might have been. Um, and when some Schalke fans be, before um, the recent game with Dortmund, some ultras invaded the team hotel. Um, one of the questions they put to Jochen Schneider, the sporting director, was um, 
who did the medical for Klaasian Huntelaar? Was it was it the groundsman? Because clearly something's gone horribly wrong there. And you're right, David, about those mistakes being made upstairs. Now they've got a new coach in in uh, Dimitrios Gromosis, who they've been looking at for a while. Um, who is someone who is very much pitched at them doing a decent job in the second tier. But they're just going to have to gut the squad. Uh, you know, there's no other way both from an expense point of view, because they're about 250 million euros in debt, and because there's something really rotten in Denmark. You know, this set of players um, are letting them down time and again. And, you know, when you go through that many coaches, okay, the coach has an input, but it's clearly not the coach. It's clearly this this set of players who um, are not doing it for Schalke and Schalke aren't doing it for them. It's always a horrible thing to say, but they are a club that needs to go down to to start mm. again. W- would you agree with that? Uh, well, from a sporting perspective, yes. From a financial perspective, it's going to hurt. I mean, they've, they've already started to plan and they've said, look, um, we, we know where we're at. If we're going to fill up the ground, we need to cut ticket prices significantly. So in terms of TV money, in terms of gate money, they're going to take a hit. They'd already put um, a limit on earning last summer, um, but but now that wage bill is is really going to come down. Now, if this means they can go back to to zero and start bringing good players out of their their academy, then that that is a that is a good thing because you look at um, some of the players they've brought through. Um, of course, uh, Neuer. Urzil in the past, and now you look at um, Jan Bozdoyan, who is a very good young midfield player and not scared either. I mean, you look back to other Schalke products like Julian Draxler. What was so good about him is he understood what it meant to play for Schalke and he didn't shrink into his shell even when he was a teenager. And that, that is super important in a club like that. And it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying at about Marseille, you need to be a certain personality to deal with the pressure that you get in there. You know, Schalke are one of the best supported clubs in the world in terms of fans coming through the door. I mean, it's over 60,000 every fortnight in in normal times. So to cope with that, I mean, when they're in the second division, David, they're going to have, in one sense, an immense power, but in another sense, an immense pressure because I don't want to go onto that cliche about it being everyone's cup final when they, they turn up at Schalke. But can you imagine like as an away player in the second tier going to a team that's got 60,000 fans in, you know, all all things being well and, and, and grounds being full again next season. Yeah, no, no, I I completely understand. I just, um, you know, the reason I bring it up, I just sometimes think when these clubs that do operate badly and have been doing so for quite some time, it almost encouraged them to continue along that that path. And who says Kick next season? Say the they stayed up. Next season, yeah, yeah. Next season they go through another three or four coaches, and then they keep doing the same thing mm. over and over again. Sometimes it takes a reset, yeah. in this case a relegation, to potentially start things. Yeah, I'm not sure if this relegation is the rock bottom. Um, if and when it happens, that you have suggested it is uh, Andy in your piece in the Guardian 
because um, the trajectory of you know my own team, Charlton. I know it's not a comparison, but nevertheless, is when when you get relegated from the top division with no plan and with the players not um, playing for you. Uh, first of all, the, the, it's not just wages that come down. A lot of staff, a lot of backroom staff lose their jobs. Yeah. Uh, really ordinary people who are essential ingredients in making the club what it is. And you're looking at a potential another season of relegation. I think you're right when you say other teams will be thinking we can get a result at Schalke. You know, this is what we've been waiting for. It's a cup final. And I, I don't think they've hit rock bottom. I think that they might... Rock bottom is, you know, a long way beneath where they might be at the moment. Yeah, I, th- I think it's an interesting point, Don, because uh, to, to go back to the article, I said, have they hit rock bottom? I didn't say that they had hit rock bottom. But I, th- I think you're right, because you look at where Hamburg are, and Hamburg have not got as much debt. But, you know, having never been out of the top flight, they now can't get back in it. And they look like they might muck it up again this season after their little mini winless run that they're in at the moment. Can I just suggest to you what a Bundesliga's fight it would be next season if Schalke are going to go, say Hamburg don't come up, and say Hertha, who are just teetering above the trap door, go down as well. Can you imagine those three in the second tier of German football. I mean, some would say, well, what a blow that would be to um, to the German top flight. But for the second tier, I mean, it would make it must-watch, right? Okay, it's that point. We've talked about the clubs that are struggling, but give us something to look forward to this weekend, gentlemen. A game of the week from each of you. Andy, do you have a game of the week for us? Um, yeah, I'm going to stay in Germany for my game of the week. It is going to be... Bayern versus Borussia Dortmund, uh, which is on Saturday at half past five, and you can watch it on UK TV. Um, it's it's really interesting because Dortmund have had this good little mini run. They've won four in a row. Um, they've looked more together. They gave quite a sensible performance in winning uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach in the in, in the cup in the week, and with Bayern out of the cup. And then in the semi-finals, it gives Edin Terzic a great opportunity to um, win a trophy before he, he hands over to Marco Rosa. And so you think, well, they're, they're in a good position to to, to approach the Classica then. And you think, actually, they'll probably go there and get beaten 4-5-0, won't they? I mean, this this like level of optimism makes you think that the inevitable is going to happen next. You know, that they really need the points because they're they're chasing the top four now. Eintracht Frankfurt lost last weekend, so and they're only three points behind. But I think if they get anything from this, it's a good result because, of course, Bayern are starting to get their ill and injured back as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing how Dortmund stand up to the pressure, and I hope it's more of a contest than the last few games between these two, uh, the Allianz Arena, have been. And David, do you have an equally tantalising game of the week for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Madrid derby in La Liga. Um, first place versus second place. Um, we've got Atleti, who are at the moment top of the league. Um, <laughs> and their lead, what they had at one point, was eight points clear. That was at the uh, start of February. I think it was, yeah, yeah, they'd, they'd won and they went eight points clear. Real Madrid, Barcelona were seemingly in some sort of crisis 
And things have turned around right now. Um, if Real Madrid were to win this and Barcelona were to win their game and wait or Osasuna, then uh, we're talking about a two-point lead uh, that Atleti would have. Um, it would increase the pressure on them uh, immensely so. So, yeah, uh, 3.15 on Sunday um, is the Madrid derby. Unmissable. Thank you, both of you. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.